Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Heath, and coming up on this week, we're discussing the documentary for Mad Men Only, the stories of Del Close with the director, co-writer, Heather Ross, and its co-producer, editor, George Mandel. We're also joined by a frequent uh, guest host, friend of the podcast, Dustin Lavelle, uh, who I should mention when I'm recording this and posting this is the day before his birthday. So happy day before your birthday. He was also notorious for uh, having six birthdays on Facebook at any given time. So this one's the real one. Uh, but first off, what I watched this week, I'm working right now, so I didn't really have anything interesting. A lot of into the night uh, rewatches of whatever's available on Netflix and uh, Amazon Prime. But one thing that stood out was I put on the 2010 Predators, produced by Robert Rodriguez, sequel to, I, I don't know how many, if you don't count the Aliens versus Predator movies, as uh, I guess the third Predator sequel, followed up by the Shane Black one, which, if you don't count the Alien versus Predator movies, I'm actually a fan of all the Predator sequels for the most part. I, I, I mean, I don't really remember much about Predator 2, but the reboots, I'm, I'm surprised they did. Um, and I remember this movie being kind of derided. Uh, and when I told friends I liked it, and I put it on, and it was still as good as I remembered. It's like a really crazy lean movie, and also just really throws you into the premise without knowing what the hell's going on in a very interesting way. And I kind of went down a little bit of a rabbit hole and trying to remember what happened to uh, its director, Nimrod Antal. He did, uh, if you remember, his underrated 2007 movie, Vacancy, with Luke Wilson and Kate Beckinsale, which is solid. Um, also, on a personal note, uh, I don't remember if Predators was shot in Austin, but I was still working at the Austin Film Society as a projectionist off and on. And before they got ready to shoot, I don't know if they're in the pre-production, I ran screenings for the production in Antal. They showed two, Fox sent in two prints. They sent in the original Predator and the McTiernan Predator. And then they sent, I believe it was Alien? Not Aliens, Alien, if I remember correctly. And I didn't really get to talk to anybody in the production. I didn't, you know, didn't have anything to do with it. I just, it was an excuse to watch some really nice prints of both those movies. Um, I remember him being kind of a filmmaker's filmmaker. Like he was, he was good. And, uh, I mean, I've looked up some stuff. He's done some TV shows since then. He did a movie called The Whiskey Bandit in 2017, which now I kind of want to check out. And he, he worked on uh, some Midnight Shyamalan TV shows. He did Wayward Pines and Servant. But I was always curious what happened to that guy. Also, on that nostalgia train, I watched uh, Last Boy Scout on Netflix, which, uh, speaking of Shane Black and uh, Predator and Predators, uh, you know, obviously... All that great chain black dialogue, but uh, I don't need to litigate the whole history of the buddy cop and its uh, iterations. Uh, but watching them right next to each other, Predators was a little better in this regard. But the two of them are just like, what is it with the like world weary antagonistic asshole as like the default character status of your protagonist, where it's just like. I'm just meeting you for the first time and I'm going to be a world-weary asshole. Well, I'm just meeting you for the first time and I'm going to be a world-weary asshole. Well, top that. Uh, charming. Um, it's it's still fun. It's uh, a lot of the Shane Black uh, archetypes were the um, divorced wife, the uh, 
smart ass kid. They're all there. Christmas in Last Boy Scout? I don't think it is. Uh, on a personal note for this week, uh, also this weekend was super fun because we had we were brought back the Victory International Film Festival in Evansville. Which, if you're interested in more of that, you can check back on Matthew Olm's episode. Matt started the festival um back in 2019 and then last year pandemic kind of wiped it out and it was it was hampered a little in many ways and it's kind of impressive that they were able to pull it off but it was super fun but at the end on a personal note they had an award ceremony and they um it, it's it's for those in evansville it's in the that church that's in the old hammerheads building on the second floor and they try to set up like an oscar ceremony and they're giving all the awards to everybody. And the second to the last award they give is a spirit award. And I remember the description of it, but it was something along the lines of who helped out the festival most. And two people won. I don't remember the first person. I was not, I was not familiar with the first person. But the second person to win was this podcast's own frequent co-host, Ted Haycraft. And Ted could not have been more excited and touched to be able to give an Oscar speech. So he got up. Uh, he got very emotional. He dedicated it to his dad. It was one of my highlights of the week. And the festival was really fun and uh, promising. I hope next year, once uh, all the COVID issues get out of the way, which, I mean, we're going to be dealing with for years, it is very promising for the next few years. I'm very excited about that. But uh, as for this episode, it's Heather Ross and George Mandel who um, have worked a long time on the stories of Del Close, which you should see this documentary if you're not familiar with the name Del Close. Uh, it's And Dustin came on because he's um, an improv veteran of the Chicago scene and had worked with uh, some of the, the institutions that Del was uh, foundational on, including Improv Olympic. And it, it it this is a this is a good episode. It is a really fascinating deep dive into not just the doc, but the subjects behind the doc and the nature of improv and creation. We end up talking a lot about this uh, Chicago improv bible, Truth and Comedy, that's written by Close, uh, Sharna Halperin, and Kim Johnson. We talk also a lot about the basis for the visual basis for the documentary is a comic book series called wasteland a pre-vertigo dc series from the late 80s that is basically the one thing that close put out to a biography and again if you're unfamiliar with del close the, the term guru is used unironically and there's there's a sequence in the documentary where you can find the roots of his teachings going to pretty much all of modern comedy uh saturday night live beyond so there's just a lot in this episode i hope you enjoy what drew you guys to tell close in the first place why uh heather what, what is your background so I come from a doc background and the, you know, I was sort of working on a lot of like verite, hardcore, you know, serious docs. And um, that's why I was in Chicago a while ago. Um, I was working on a, a doc about teenage girls in prison. Okay. Um, very very improv comedy based. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, you know, was there making this like serious doc and like, I was, um, you know, sort of like, oh man, I better like really treat these kids with like kid gloves. And they were like, 
you know, what? And they were, they were just like so funny. They were like, they surprised me by being like hilarious and super smart in their humor and super dark in their humor, obviously, because they were going through some stuff. So like, uh, yeah, it just started me thinking about what comedy is for. Cause like in my, the, you know, extracurricularly, I was a big comedy nerd and going out to stand up shows a lot. That's uh, what I was, like, wanting, I was wanting to find out. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, improv was really not on my radar at that point. I was like, a, you know, here in LA going to like Largo and, you know, like sort of like low profile comedy, you know, stand up comedy. Groundlings wouldn't have been a part of any of this or anything like that. You know, I knew about Groundlings. They like lived <laughs> around the corner from it, but I never, went because I, I just didn't totally know what it was I knew so we would go to these little like stand-up shows with like you know you know like David Cross and you know Paul F. Tompkins and like people like that and um I just loved it because it was like so referent self-referential and like kind of down and dirty which are some of the things that I ended up really loving about improv so you know I was in Chicago like working on the serious doc with these hilarious girls and sort of started wondering, yeah, what's the connection between humor and like the worst, you know, crap that we go through because <laughs> that seems to be like the funniest stuff to me. So, you know, around that time I was hearing about this like mysterious Del Close guy who like had a needle hanging out of his arm, but he trained all of my favorite, you know, <laughs> SNL comics. And, you know, um, I was like, that guy probably knows something about darkness and comedy. I'm going to, I'm going to check into him. Okay. No, I mean, it, it makes sense. I, I hate, I hate to say it, but when I was in LA, I never did growlings either, but I was at Largo shows too. But, um, George, did you, were, was, um, were you, did you have any improv interests or did you do have experience with it or? Not, not really as, as heavily as Heather. Um, she, she kind of brought me into this world. Um, but I mean, I do, love, I do love it. And you know, I've, I've, I, well, I've worked on, I mean, I, I used to work on this show, the league and there was a ton of improv on that show. And, there's there's um, a lot of Chicago improv people, isn't there? Yep. Yep. Okay. And it's based in, I mean, the show is takes place in Chicago. Um, okay. I mean, it's not filmed there, but, uh, uh, there was a lot of improv in that and some, and it turned out some of the, cast of that show you know came from some of the same dna you know they paul Shear, you know his big ucb guy Chase Manzucas, Nicole, you know they're all they all kind of live in that space people yeah that, people's faces that were in the dock too well let's see who was jason yeah. jason was paul's voice was <laughs> um yeah i mean yeah. i think that also was super interesting like how yeah, how that like comedy DNA flows, like, cause you know, my entry point into Del Close was like Gilda Radner and, and Bill Murray, sort of his OG, some of his OG students. But then the more you dig, the more you find out like, you know, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler are part of that. And then it's the people that like, you know, Amy Poehler and Matt Walsh and the UCB4 trained. And, you know, another offshoot is like all the writers on Conan. And, you know, we didn't really get into that, but like the office comes out of like, was, was heavily influenced by Del Close and everybody had to read truth and comedy and, you know, just all these things that I didn't have any idea were related, but that I liked all had this sort of like weird, you know, creepy grandfather Del Close. So we had to, you, like, you guys have that great out. TV montage in there where everything comes off the TV and just all the people that Del would have influenced. Um, 
Dustin, what is, um, you know, you and I started or did Second City Bro briefly before you continued on to it, but you eventually moved on to Improv Olympic, didn't you? Yeah, uh, I started at Second City actually in 2001. So it was right after Dell had died. Uh, and then I was doing like, I was kind of, I was still living back in Indiana and driving up to Chicago. Uh, so I did like summer things and then I did the Improv Festival for a few years. Uh, and then I moved to Chicago uh, and went through Second City and then uh, IO and Annoyance as well. Yeah. Oh, the Holy Trinity. Yeah, that was. What that was, was your IO experience like then? Um, so it was. Um, I I took from Sharna, um, actually at IO, uh, and she is the uh, for people that don't know. Uh, so it was actually Improv Olympic, I think, when I was there. Um, and she, uh, started it with, um, with Dell and she really used a lot of Dell's teaching to kind of build the, to build the theater. Um, but she was not necessarily known as an improviser or as a teacher unto herself. She's known more as the businesswoman and like the kind of the face of IO. It was always, okay. you know, she was always walk walking around with her dogs and stuff like that. <laughs> so, um, so a lot of her class was just her telling stories about, Chris Farley getting on stage and things like that. Uh, oh but God. I took a lot of, yeah, I took with a lot of other people that were in the, were in the documentary. So, uh, Susan Messing and, and, uh, you know, Dave and all those people. Yeah. So. Was, um, how, how much, if you were, it was like what, two years you got to Chicago or started doing improv in Chicago after Dell died. How much was Dell still talked about then? I mean, besides beyond the teaching, but just more of like, like his legacy still being all around. You know, it's interesting how much it has changed over the years. So when I showed up in whatever it was, 2001, he was still very much um, like there was a hole that had like, like, you know, from him leaving. And I, you really talk about this really well in your documentary that he had become uh, the guru. And at a certain point, it was like a little bit of a self-professed title, but also he really was. There was kind of this idea that everybody had to go through and you had to take a class with Dell, um, you know. And uh, by that point, honestly, in his teaching, he, was, um, he wasn't teaching as much, and, you know, right before he died. And, and so there, there was not a lot of like, you know, people, those students were not as popular or like big on him. But at that point, they were already taking classes with his students, like his, you know, the people that he trained, the next generation that had come along. Um, and then when he died, it was, there was still this thing like, oh my God, Dell's gone. And like, you would still get in class, you know, I, these teachers would say, oh, this is a, this, like, they would impart to you what Dell's wisdom was. Uh, but there was still this huge thing. So at the IO Theater, which was at the time back uh, on Clark Street, kind of like a half mile from where I live now, um, they uh, he had his own theater. So there, there was like the main cabaret theater, and then there was an upstairs theater. And uh, he died of emphysema, and so like late in his life, he couldn't even go upstairs to his own theater. And but there was like a little. He was very into. Uh, you guys show the, in, the, in the movie the the pagan rituals and the, <laughs> the stuff that he does. But he had like a little like um, I don't know what you'd call like a like a implement like you know some sort of little temple thing, and then like you could leave cigarettes in like a in a glass jar for him. So there was there was this huge like um, spirit like you know like oh my god Dell's there, and then there were other people that immediately wanted to either become the guru or they were saying this person is now the, the, the guru like and so like somebody else wanted to like 
Um, and some oh, people I'm curious who that was. Well, so I mean, I don't, you know, Dell was definitely the guru, and he like wanted that title, and it was very important to him. Uh, after he passed away, uh, Mick Napier kind of became yeah. like the, the the guy that people wanted to go to, and Mick has his own book, and he's a, he's briefly in your in your movie too, uh, but. Uh, Mick also is is sort of a different sort of person and and totally. didn't necessarily like want to be like in that sort of way. I mean, a great teacher, um, not a cult leader, people, not a cult <laughs> leader, you know, but like a great guy to like you know take classes from and stuff like that. But like other people wanted to be the guru. One person called himself the impresario. Like it was weird. Like people wanted to have the titles oh, and things. No. Uh, and then a few years later, uh, when I was actually like going through Second City, I remember going into a class um, that Michael Gelman was teaching, and he was mm. like, "I forgot that I have to do this Dell close like thing." It was like a five year retrospective of like past after Dell had passed away. So we go and you know, there's a there's on stage Gelman and and um, Dave Pasquazzi and some other people that knew Dell, uh, Tim Kazaransky and things. And um, they were not as positive. It was like some of the shine had started to come off of him because uh, one thing you really show in this movie as well is, uh, and you point out, is that he had a lot of mental, you know, issues and he had a lot of addictions. And quite frankly, he was just an asshole. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> and I don't know in the world today, like he had some very different ideas about women's role in comedy <laughs> in terms of like, you know, he had like a Jerry Lewis kind of idea of, <laughs> of how, how women were funny. He's a little homophobic. He, he, I, I had never read his comic book and I really want to talk to you about that. But like, I thought that was interesting. I read uh, six issues of it last night, which I'll get okay. into later. Yeah, mm. but I thought that was interesting. Like the Bernie Salins, like like a little bit of anti-Semitism in there. <laughs> like... <laughs> So the stories start coming out that he's not very much uh, a positive person. And then also in improv, it's so ephemeral. Like, you know, the, it's very hard to capture on film and, and like really like translate what it's like to be in the room when when it's happening. So at this point, Dell has, has passed away and been gone for several years. And now the people that he taught are a lot of in a lot of ways like moving on they've all gone on to Saturday Night Live or The Daily Show or wherever they were right right uh, and and so you now have the next generation from them that are the teachers and so you're you're kind of more removed from that main source so he kind of became a figure sort of outside and there was also not the the, there wasn't the big rivalry between like Second City and IO anymore so it was right. like you kind of like they were both kind of their own thing. So like Dell and Bernie and you guys, you show that great in the movie as well. Like that was a big thing in the eighties and it was really important to them. Like this artistic vision about is improv an art unto itself or is it just a tool to make uh, comedy? And um, it got to a point like for the students that you don't care. Like you just, you want to go and you want to take from specific people. So. Uh... Well, I mean for the doc, you guys, I mean, what was the templates that you tried to keep it simple to? Like it was just Dell and use that as to talk about Dell's influence. Like you didn't want to necessarily go into a full thing on Chicago's improv scene in itself, although you right. had to naturally right. just because the, the influence of comedy coming from it or, you know, going to Toronto later with, with Second City. Yeah, it's definitely not like a history of improv. Like we don't talk about like Viola Spolin or Paul Sills or like people who came before 
Dell. You know, one thing I know working in media is like, it's the easy thing that ends up being what everybody knows. So a lot of people think like, oh, Dell invented improv or whatever. It just becomes like <laughs> the easy way to right. say it. He definitely didn't. And there were definitely a million other players before him and during him and adding to him. But I was interested in him as like a character, you know, like right. less of an exploration. I mean, it is sort of a biography of an art form as well, you mm. know, but okay. but it's like sort of how that emerged from him. And, mm -hmm. you know, by looking at him as one of the primary sources or rivers of this art form, you start to see how art develops in general and how it's like sort of like a big ecosystem of people um, a lot of whom never get any credit, you know, and, yeah. but yeah. it's, you know, it, it is, you know, it's, it's all one sort of like muddy, sludgy, disgusting <laughs> world. And, but then like, you know, a few people kind of poke their heads out and get famous or, or notorious. And I Dell's think, um, case. well, I, I one thing I, I really like, and maybe this is because I just read this book recently, but I read this biography about Leo Fender and Les Paul and like kind of it's it's not a history of the guitar, but these are two people that Luminary. designed the guitar, right? Like, you know, people know Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix and, you know, Jimmy Page and like they, you know, all the guitar gods, but people don't necessarily know the people that made the guitar. And I thought there was sort of Les Paul was not, you know, as, as a madman as much as Del Close was, but it was the same sort of thing where he was very much, um, he did not invent the electric guitar or the solid body electric guitar, but he pushed these innovations in, in a way that when no one else cared. And so Del Close did not create long form improv or any, you know, improv, but he's the reason why people do improv the way they do today, because he cared about it so much when no one else wanted to sell it so he and we're actively it. pushing him against it too it felt like exactly yeah um i was i actually kind of skimmed through truth and comedy for the first time last night and i was kind of found interesting especially at the beginning his dedications were to old compass people and a lot of them, you mentioned other all these people in key and improv who never heard of um or just remembered or just their career didn't like you know you think of dell and mike nichols fighting but like there was more people but the, the mm -hmm. and the dedications, I mean, I, like you have that part in the doc where he says he's still in love with Elaine May to a certain extent. Elaine May's thing, uh, Theodore J. Flicker and mm -hmm. uh, Severin Darden. And mm -hmm. I was going through their lists of stuff and like there was a lot of cool stuff in the 60s, but there was also a cool list of stuff, other stuff. Like, have any of you guys seen The President's Analyst? No, no, but it's, uh, is that, that's one they of were the both They both committee. overlapped on it too. And it's always been a recommendation to, to watch, but like just stuff like that, or like, um, did a movie that Buck Henry wrote called, uh, The Troublemaker. Yeah. I mean, Flickr was super interesting and like, it was kind of cool. It was like an age of like all these like sort of bohemian edgy people. And you could, you know, like they were out of St. Louis and then going to New York and like, yeah. And then, you know, it's, it's just as, you know, they were experimenters and yeah, probably, you know, it's kind of like the underground comics or the, you know, the edgy comics of our age that maybe nobody will remember, but definitely, you know, got some stuff going. And a documentary like this, it's naturally going to be about myth making and legend making and Dell seems pretty prone to self mythologizing. Um, but I, I was, you said comics, but I my brain went to a different part. Um, we sh 
we should talk about the comic. It, how, <laughs> how was it? it it's it's a really interesting choice to uh, use that as like, but it, it it's to to template it for the doc. But like, did you do it just because of the visuals there, or like, because he says that um, there's some biography in there, and there is. But I mean, I like there's 18 issues. I, I checked with my local comic book store. My uh, frequent co-host uh, Ted Haycraft was work uh, was ordering for that store, and he told me, yeah, we might still have some. I called. They have all 18 issues because they overordered in the 80s. It's a really weird particular time for comics, too, because it's like you guys mentioned it's post Watchmen and Dark Knight. But it's also like it's that like post Alan Moore Swamp Thing pre Vertigo. I think most people will be familiar with it with Sandman. It's a it's it's a very DC horror stuff. And it's very distinctive. And for Del Close, like that being the key thing, he's beside truth and comedy, which he's one of three authors on to have an 18 issue vertigo horror comic from the late 80s that has this kind of like not ec but kind of an ec vibe to it it's how did it's you guys crazy. how did you guys do this like were you just cherry picking for the autobiographical stuff or and was it the first in, in, in your first instinct to do this just because it's visual or it came no it wasn't the first instinct it was like it kind of came out of like look we we have this guy we're telling the story of this guy there's not that he wasn't a famous guy you know like mm. he he was in some weird movies so we're gonna use those you know and we're gonna like scour chicago for all the tapes and you know things in people's basements but like it's still not enough to like really you know show it we still need more material so like when we found out about the wasteland i was kind of like oh yeah that's, <laughs> that's fucking weird oh sorry um, <laughs> that's all right. you can fucking cuss all you want that's good awesome awesome fuck yeah so we um yeah so but my 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 writing partner was like this could be really cool this is like uh, very like something i didn't know about and i was a comedy fan a comics fan in the 80s and you know when we started looking at it yeah, it's not strictly autobiographical, but there are, you know, in every uh, in every issue, there's usually like one or two stories from Dell's life and they're fully souped up and like, you know, uh, they enter fantasy land for sure. And, um, and I thought, well, that's like really revealing, you know, like if he's going to portray. It is revealing. Himself, it's definitely revealing. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, George, like it's like this is how he the story existed in his fevered brain, you know, like with aliens or, you know, weird swamp creatures or whatever. And then like George was even like poking around in some of the other stories and like, you know, you had a, a question about that, like, you know, there's a story about like abortion and how you should oh. be able to abort like yeah, <laughs> kids no, no. up to age 18 or something. Well, we mentioned, oh, right, we, we right. mentioned right. that I in the scene. The title of it is retroactive abortion. Yeah. R-A-B. Yeah. And, and they, they like, I think the, the visuals are like, you know, uh, they are like throwing a baby out a window. You know? That's, I, I think that's how it ends. Dude. And it's, it's yeah. like, you, you should, you should be able to abort. A, I think it's up to 12, up to age 12. You should be able to oh. still abort your child. Yeah. The craziest story I, I noted down was the story about the kid who thinks his stepdad's a werewolf. Mm. That There's was, that was probably one of the best ones I read. That that's a good one. And there's another one. I mean, yeah, and that's what I was gonna say is like they're all they're like George was like cluing into the fact that there are these stories that are not autobiographical, but kind of speak to Dell's weird father son. Mm -hmm. Am I you know suicidal? 
urges. Like, you know, there's another one where it's like a father, a son is like, has to dissect a frog at school and like he, he comes home all upset. And so he and the dad go and they dissect the biology teacher. <laughs> I did not read that one. I didn't read that one. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, but no, that was one of the ones they were like most proud of him and, and John. And you definitely can see something very personal in there, you know, with his weird relationship with his dad. And well, the whole thing is so fascinating because he he didn't write a a normal autobiography. He he gave us this. And it's this such a weird it. legacy to leave too, or a place mm -hmm. to put it in autobiography. But it's so him because he was such a, mm, you know, that's a good point. He, he was such a, you know, he was not one to tell you things as they are. He, he was one to like sort of bury the truth in whatever mechanisms he felt like at the time. And it was, you know, and this is what he was doing then. Well, I have, like a, I, I have a question for all of you because uh, being not as familiar with Dell as you guys um, in the doc, Whenever they first you first talk about uh, Dell Close's father committing suicide in front of him, um, I noted down right away that sounds like bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, specifically because the glass, he was like, you drink a glass of water and uh, then you know flailed as he died and turned out it was all battery acid. I immediately went to like, how does one get battery acid out of a battery? Do you like, <laughs> and then do you get multiple batteries until you get a full glass of it? And then when you drink it down, do you just calmly like shake your arm as you die and the acid burns in your throat? And I, I think mm -hmm. elsewhere you mentioned sulfuric acid. Um, and, and then you also mentioned towards the end that there's this d d controversy over whether this happened exactly, but Dell's telling us that what, what is the, how do people typically view this? The biographers view this, like, do they take it? Is it a questionable controversial thing or? Well, the Howard Johnson, who is in the movie and is sort of like Dell's maybe most um, truthy biographer um, did like research all of these myths and some of them he discerned were true and some weren't. And so he, found the death certificate he found the you know the the stories in the paper and it, it was you know Dell was not eight or nine like he said he was 21 he wasn't living in Kansas even so he was in, in New York so it certainly didn't happen the way he said it did okay. um so that's like an interesting thing because that's like a full wasteland story that could have been a wasteland story and that's or as know, he says a, a story to get laid or a story right. to get laid or a story to get attention or a story that like wow this was like so painful to me and i if i just tell it like it happened no one's gonna get that so i'm gonna really put put a lot of bells and whistles on it until somebody sees how horrifying this was you know like we don't know it might have been all of those things you know i think they're probably parts of Dell that were mysterious, even to himself. Emotional truth. Emotional truth. Right. I, I think that also kind of speaks to like how he, how he perceived himself. And that's one of the things that I really enjoyed was in the show was that like, there was so much of him like trying to find his identity. So he starts out as like a, you know, a carnival part, you know, like a, or in the circus freak. Right. And then he's a, you know, fire eater and things. And then he kind of moves into theater. Um, and when he went to San Francisco and, and worked with the committee and he invents the Herald, um, he actually hates the name, the Herald. And he, he kind of like fought against it for a long time from what mm -hmm. I read. And then like, 
later in life he kind of like owned it like it was his thing and, and like kind of re you know retroactively changed the the history that you know that he, he it was his idea to, to call it the herald or something like that but <laughs> a lot of people remember it that it was from from a different from a different way so I, I always thought that was interesting what was the herald like before it became the teaching herald it was when, a, it was, was a, more rules onto it it, it didn't it really have mess. rules it, had, it was yeah. like it, it was like a demolition derby on stage <laughs> like there was nothing and uh we, we had this great um interview with adam mckay and he talks a lot about this um and you know obviously we used some of it and there's a ton of it that we didn't use but one of the analogies he gives is that it's um you know the teaching herald was like like uh basketball right like didn't you say that it was like a a fast break yeah yeah and it was like how do you, i think it was how do you do a fast <laughs> like imagine basketball p players on the court with no lanes so yeah. imagine if they didn't have their lanes and they didn't know what to right. do and they you know their passing wasn't figured out and dribbling wasn't totally figured out either and yeah you know the hoop was always changing height I was, yeah so like the the format like was so there was no format really he was just trying to figure things out and it was all long form and you have to realize it even to those those old people like Paul Sills and like the old the other Compass players, what they thought of as improv was so incredibly short. Like I remember doing a like a it was like the 50 year anniversary of the Compass players whatever, and I'm like interning backstage, and um, somebody's on stage like doing scenes for them, like you know, hey, look, this is this art form that you created, and they were backstage bitching because they're like, why are they doing this so long, like. <laughs> <laughs> they, they like they they it's just such short little scenes um and then dell was trying to push things for like you know an hour long two hours long and it just was never working like in terms of success rate like you you know even your best improvisers are going to hit maybe 80 percent of the time your tina Fey's or you know tj jagodowski's or whoever those you know hopefully they get something interesting but it's probably not going to be funny for very much of the time um <laughs> And so one of the things that was actually interesting was before um, before Dell came along, Sharna was working with a guy named uh, David Shepard. I don't know yeah. if you yep. guys study him much, right? He had the original kind of workings for the Improv Olympic where they were going to bring in like... So part of the problem with improv or is uh, in the history of improv is that it's always straight white guys with ties, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of the long Or from legacy. Schomburg, as you guys right. mentioned. White <laughs> guys in khakis. Right, in like... Oh yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That's I mean, we learned that in at Second City. Like you have to do, you know, you have to do find out how to make your scene for Ma and Pa Schomburg. Um, but yeah, or the guys in khakis, or like the way the Tina Fey described it in the, being like pulled in the cult. But it's um, <laughs> is that why you have to be able to you have to be able to appeal to like middle Schomburg people? That's the point of what, why everyone was dressed like. That? I mean, that's so there, there's a push and pull, you know, with Second yeah. City, like how edgy and then, but ultimately, like who's coming in? It's the tourists coming from Middle America, mm -hmm. or you're in a bus going to Middle America, or later on they're on a cruise line or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, um, so it's, the, it, it, was there, there tension between the touring company and the home company on this too? Oh, absolutely. Amy Poehler was famous because, so the touring company would go out for second city and you had to do like a best of show and Amy Poehler's touring company would go out and just do their own material. <laughs> like they weren't actually, cause they're like, Oh, no one's watching us. Like right. no one knows do what we're doing. We <laughs> so we'll just whatever we want. So they got in trouble for it. That's uh, but anyway, back to David Shepard, uh, when the improv Olympics started was he had this, he was a compass player, uh, and one of the early people with Paul Sills and really pushed this Bertolt Brecht kind of, and also socialist idea mm -hmm. to the theater. 
and he had this idea for Improv Olympic where it was going to be like, we'll get a team of rabbis to do improv, mm-hmm. and a team of plumbers, and a team of like just different like factions that you wouldn't normally see. Um, and it failed miserably. Like you just can't get <laughs> those are the people amazing. that want to come do it. I know I it sounds like a great idea. And so like it kind of fell apart, and that's when Sharna went looking for someone new and Dell, like you say in your 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 show, your movie was that he was looking for kind of a place and I love that Adam McKay bit calling it the teaching herald because I'm like, mm-hmm. yes, this is exactly what it ends up becoming. Right. Like it becomes a very good structured format that you learn. And then from that they create other, you know, improv improvised forms like the bad or the, you know, uh the musical or different mm-hmm. sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was like his white whale since the since the time in San Francisco, and that well, I don't remember what year it was. It was in the '60s, the Summer of Love, in San Francisco. <laughs> he like accidentally found the Herald in like a you know heroin induced you know haze, <sighs> and and uh, and then decided to chase it for the rest of his life, and uh, eventually he, he got it. You know. What would I first? I I I, I mentioned I, I read Truth and Comedy for the first time. I just skimmed through it yesterday, but I wrote down a bunch of stuff in here that um, for someone that you know, this doc is based on someone who has a dark impulse to create art, um, and obviously this book was authored by three people. There's a lot of fucking wisdom in this, and a lot of yeah. wisdom that doesn't just apply to storytelling, but like living a mentally healthy life. There is yeah. like. Yes. Um, uh support and trust is obviously a big part make connections don't force them don't try to make jokes respect choices by others there's no mistakes everything is justified uh the best way to look good is to make your fellow players look good Mm -hmm. accept and build stay in the moment now is the key to discovery no such thing as a mistake and then in storytelling just or like if you're just trying to like draft get stuff get a story out of you uh keep it simple less is more start a scene in the middle active choices be specific avoid generalities and reveal through character i mean mm-hmm. for someone that's fucked up on drugs a lot of the time like there's i i could see why this book is so influential and is taught yeah. to other people yeah and i think it's like yeah like you said it's it's it was a revelation to me to read because i came from a really different way of understanding creativity and understanding making you know as a filmmaker you know you do this this and there's a tour theory and stuff and mm. you know to have something that was so collaborative and so like you can't be wrong you know like this is yeah. all just coming out of our own stories our own experience our own honesty so like you know your job is to justify and find out why you made that weird connection that seems like a mistake but it's not um so to me, it was it, it was really helpful, and and in writing, I find it really helpful too. And you know, that to me was like, that's something that's really special about this art form. Whether or not you enjoy a half hour herald on your local, <laughs> you know, yeah. and and some do more than others. Like the fact that it gives permission for people to you know to put themselves into something and like makes art making accessible to anybody who gets that book at the library, you know, it, that's yeah. pretty great. Right. I, I got a lot out of making this film too. Um, just, I, I sort of feel like having seen all this footage and hearing all these people who worked with Dell, 
talk about him so intimately and his teachings and and um, his persona, I, I feel a little bit like I've taken at least one class from him, you know, <laughs> like uh, there's, you know, there's, we just had to get to know all this stuff so well and, you know, you can't help but absorb it. And I definitely have taken some of these lessons, like things that you just mentioned and, and brought them into like my editing work. Well, as an editor, like, like, you know, I, when I, when I first getting into movies, the auteur theory was so nice sounding until you have to become a collaborator. And then you're just like, I, I need someone that needs to learn how to collaborate better or just yeah. like, yeah. and it's BS. I mean, if yeah. anyone who's ever made a film like knows it's not one person's vision. Yeah. Or just like, I, I, I get the power structure that like there needs to be a head for mm -hmm. business and all that stuff kind of, but at the same time, like, these are great rules for collaboration and actual yeah. like, cause a lot, so much collaboration people are taught bad collaboration is to um, not encourage in some, so many ways, like, or to have a fall or a, a elusive idea of what success is. Like we just need to make something good. And if you collaborate, it's like, let's, I got a specific task. Let's get together and make something that, like, and I mean, these rules when, when creation is so nebulous, the, especially on the spot, and as you mentioned, Dustin, it's ephemeral, like an improv. These are good guideposts, this, this book and a lot of what I guess Dell's teaching was, which again, it's so weird just because like he just seems very mentally unhealthy, you know, as presented in the in the movie. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, it, and that's interesting because he and I, I found that irony like totally interesting too. It, it, some people said maybe like, the stage you know that he maybe at heart he was an idealist and the stage was where those ideas could live and he didn't really know how to make them live outside of it you know he was too defensive and he was too you know you know you mentioned a lot of things that i that we of course don't like about him that he you know said a lot of sexist things and you know he was like, you know, a shock guy. He loved to shock. That's yeah, not right. my favorite that, that fucking part of anybody, clear. you know? <laughs> um, and it's not very authentic either, you know, if you're just saying things to get a rise out of people. So it's interesting. It's, it's, it, it makes me wonder if he was chasing that or if he just knew he was too broken to be, to have these qualities, but let's put him on a place where we, you know, it, it would, he was like creating like a little safe place where nobody could, you know, come at you. Nobody could criticize. Everybody's supporting each other. Everybody's, um, and I feel like that was probably something he needed and was looking for. It, it makes sense just because like early heralds you guys are describing, there's something that sounds so masochistic about it. And mm -hmm. like, uh, I mean, in the book, uh, he, just, he go, oh, uh, quotes John Bellucci saying, good improv is better than sex. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I'm sure we and people listening have seen, I don't know whether a good Dustin, what you said, 80%, I, I, I thought it would be higher of like bad improv, like the level of like, yeah, because bad improv is so hard to watch just because it's just people trying to like, and you, and you're, it's like, it's like, it's like I'm paying to go to an art gallery of my friend's four-year-old drawings. Like, yeah. it's like I want to yeah. support this. I want to support this, yeah. but this is interminable. Well, I mean, it goes back to kind of like with his teaching and the thoughts and things that in the, any, any way that you learn improv and, and the truth in comedy was kind of like the 
first Bible. Like, it was the first one. Like, I mean, Viola Spolin had, like, her little games book. But, like, that was the first real book that wrote down, like you said, uh, Heather, for um, the chance for, like, people in middle America to, like, learn how to do improv that had never seen it or had a chance to, like, take classes at a Second City or an Improv Olympic. And the, the basic idea is you know, when you go on stage and you don't have a script and you're going to do something, your first impulse is to be scared. And so you, 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 you kind of, you know, get in yourself, you start saying no and negating and you don't want to play along. And, um, so much of Dell's teaching, uh, I mean, he didn't come up with the yes and idea, but you know, he said it in a new way and Mick says it in a different way. And they, everybody kind of says the same idea of just trying to push yourself out there in, in a way that you're, you're fearless. And I, I, you know, that's what you keep hearing, um, from the people in your documentary, you know, uh, Chris Farley or Bob Odenkirk. And I, I love the Elaine main quote about, um, yes, and being invented because, um, um, the, she wanted to figure out a way to get out on stage and survive, but uh, <laughs> get out of the stage of life. But as you've mentioned, Dustin, that seems like a very fear-based way of creating yes. And yeah, I mean, that's, 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 you know, it's not always people just saying no, but they're, they're not going along with your, your scene partner in a scene. And so, the only way you'll find something interesting is by pushing and elevating further by, you know, complimenting and agreeing with your scene partner or going along with their idea or, you know, and this is true for basically, I think this is kind of another way where it can go out into other arts. Like the idea of collaboration is if you're, you know, willing to be open and listen to, you know, your collaborators on the project and then take it to the next level in a way that uh, you guys are working together as a team, you know, it's not just a, that's that's where improv is different from a stand-up where they're just trying to control the room with it's their jokes and mm -hmm. like they need to have that power uh there's a huge vulnerability in improv not that there isn't in stand-up but in a, in a way that you're just out there you don't have any you know jokes that you know are going to get laughs to hide behind um you're you're just out there trying to make something interesting and as being someone that has been on stage doing that cringeworthy improv uh, and then also being on stage and, and getting like that, you know, that high and, and that uh, getting the laughs, it's, it's both amazing and, and terrifying. And it's, it's not something that's easy to recreate every time, but <laughs> well, when it works, like, you're doing what he says. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like watching the creative process happen in front of you. Cause that's, you know, whether you're an editor exactly. or a writer or whatever, like, you know that it's sort of equal parts like, oh my God, I'm an idiot. Who? Why did I think I could do this? And like, oh my God, I'm a genius. This is amazing. Like I've cracked, you know, the code. So, you know, and, and you see that in improv, like, you know, every time you, you know, you, you can see a bunch of crappy shows where connections aren't make, being made. And then you see one right. where it all comes together and it's so funny. And you're like, you know, it's it, it's it's more satisfying in a way than like great stand up because you watched it happen and you felt like maybe you were like a little bit of a part of that. And like as an audience, right. you're looking for those connections, too. And you're like along for the ride. So um, it's less pass. It's like you're an active, you know. It's, it's always it's always a very you had to be there kind of moment totally. so like i mean if you if you think about you know the funniest things that happened in your life you're probably not going to think about like a john mulaney bit like which are probably hilarious but the funniest <laughs> things are you and your friends joking around and when you're in an improv show either in the audience or on stage and you see like that look and that you know that actor that improviser is having the same realization that 
their character and you're in the audience and you're seeing that for the first time that they are, it's just mm. amazing. Like, you know, like, cause you all of a sudden get that subtext and all, all this, mm -hmm. you know, all the beautiful things that you'd want to see in a, in a movie or a play. Uh, and it's being, like you said, created right there in front of you. And you're seeing it for the first time that the actor is seeing. Yeah. I, uh, I've been preoccupied with rewriting lately as like rewriting is the thing that makes good writers writers. And, um, you always frame it in a way of like, it's it, who would put out their first draft right away and improv is that and it also but at the same time everyone has to vomit out a first draft and mm -hmm. there are those rare times in writing when you nail it which is with that small percentage in improv it feels like yeah it's it's interesting i'm i'm doing more writing myself and um you know i actually feel a little differently i feel like often the first draft has something you stump you can stumble on something that's really honest and you know you want to polish it you want to find out you you want to like push it you know but like you know i find that like it's sort of diminishing returns if i'm coming at it like over and over and over again i don't know i guess everyone's different i was gonna say george i got that from editing like i just started yeah. finding like re-editing is you, you, you your assemblies are are in, interminable too <laughs> they can be, yeah, and um, particularly editing improvised comedy stuff, you you have those moments of discovery on set like you would the first time on a stage, but then the difference is they go back and they shoot it five more times. They're, they're like, oh, that's a great joke. Let's try that from these seven angles. By the time you get to that perfect take where the audio is clean and everything's like as you want it, it's not funny anymore because it doesn't feel <laughs> real. It's like this, yeah. it's like, it's become like a scripted line and it, it no longer has that same sort of like initial bang. So like, like on the league, I remember a lot of times I would, I would end up using like the first or maybe the second strike of a, of a joke because that's the one that felt like, Oh, this, this is feels like a person talking, <laughs> you know, this mm. does not feel like an actor saying a line mm. or the and, sense of discovery. Yeah. Mm. And sometimes, sometimes they wanted that. And sometimes they're like, you know, we, we want to, you know, I, this, it's not as clean. Let's get the clean one. And, you know, that's yeah. one of the reasons why that show ended up feeling like, like people, I would talk to people and they go, Oh, that was improvised. I thought that was a scripted show, you know, for people who didn't. Speaking of all the people that were in the league, like um, the other interesting thing with the doc was the uh, film segments. Uh, how did that come about? I mean, was it just I, I'm, when I brought up the comic earlier, you also had the really cool bounty of the taped recordings of. Yes. Did, I mean, did Del Close record himself a lot? Um, people recorded him and, you know, and not very well, <laughs> like, you know, like <laughs> we is like you can tell it's like someone's like weird real real that they plunked down in the middle yeah. of the room and um yeah so but you know it was really cool to find you know those have been sitting in someone's garage you know mm -hmm. for for years and it was like the dell that you always hear about but don't have any footage of you know like the dell right. who's like totally waxing philosophical or yelling at his students all these things that like you know, us who came after, like, only hear the stories. So it was like, ah, it's real, <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, 
So that was. But it, it sounds like it'd also be a bunch of room tone if it's badly recorded. So it, oh, you know, to do garbage. the recreations. Well, the 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 recreations were um, uh, Heather and her her co-writer Adam Samuel Goldman. We call him ASG. He um, they they came up with this idea based on two things. One, um, kind of like what we touched on before, there just is not a lot of footage of Del Close out there. So you're making a documentary, it's a visual medium, you need to see something, okay. <laughs> you know, like, otherwise you just have a bunch of talking heads and it's like that. And we didn't want to do that. And um, so uh, it, it just kind of evolved from regular documentary, then Wasteland was discovered and that became like a mechanism for telling the story of Del Close's life. And, and, uh, and then these, this sort of just like kind of grew out of that. Um, the idea that, well, well, let's have these, let's have these scenes that tell us something about the process of putting this comic together. And so, um, that's okay. where, that's where it grew from. Um, and, the idea behind those was that everything Del Close says is a thing that he actually said. So those are like real lines of dialogue. There is probably some, you know, it's not like he said everything exactly like that in that order. I was curious about how the uh, DC Comics, uh, when they called into the DC Comics headquarters conversation, right. how mm -hmm. that was reassembled. That was that was those were all, Well, the Dell the Dell lines were all just batshit stuff he said at different places about like yeah. amoebas and yeah. let's do a scene inside a laundry machine and right, right. you know and then but then Lennon, Parham and, and Lauren Lapkus, Lauren Lapkus were... are such great improvisers and that was the idea it was like Dell's going to be locked you know James Urbaniak is going to have his lines that like are religious to what Dell actually said but then everyone else can do whatever they want and like Lauren and Lennon went crazy yeah. and just like fully improvise their lines talking about like fatal attraction and stuff like it was great the yeah. fatal attraction joke I, that, that got me pretty yeah there's a bunch of stuff i mean that they gave us so much stuff we just sort of like used what we liked the best that was our like bechdel scene bechdel, yeah, test, bechdel test scene, scene where i was like i can't have a, a movie that doesn't pass the bechdel test let's put some ladies in there and just sound you got it into a del close movie too yeah. exactly yeah. yeah and they're both you know they're amazing disciples of, of all that. Stuff. I don't, I don't no. know. I wouldn't call them disciples. They, I don't know if well, they, they were UCB people who are heavy, heavy improv yeah. people. Adam. I guess that's what I mean. Okay. But let's not, we don't know how they felt about They the do man. not, they, they do not have altars to Del Close in their <laughs> Okay. <laughs> to be clear. No. Um, my, I mentioned my, my freaking co-host Ted, um, he, he thought he knew John Ostrander at this time because he was going to the Chicago con and he was, he told me about the book, uh, uh, Wasteland, but like he doesn't really know much about improv comedy. And so he was, I feel like this, he knew Del Close. He knew who Del Close was, but when he was talking about this and being in those circles, he was saying like, you know, I think I might've met Del Close, but I don't remember it. That oh, seemed to me is interesting. emblematic of a Del Close thing where it was just like, yeah, he's a guru, but do you, Remember him in a movie? Not really. Do you know what he <laughs> looks like? Not really. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, for the longest time, nobody, I mean, like, I cared because I remember the old Upright Citizens Brigade TV show, and I was like, that's Del Close's voice oh, at the yeah. beginning, yeah. like, doing the thing. Like, and that that was the only time I ever would get to, like, hear Del Close. And, like, you guys, I learned of him in, like, 
everybody was talking about this person. Bill Murray wants to make a movie about him. Harold Ramis wants to make a movie. Like, you know, like there's all this, like, this guy is so important, but I never, you never really got to see him other than the picture. Then you have the truth and comedy book, which he didn't really like, I mean, he, he's, he's an author on it, but I don't think he did any of the actual writing. <laughs> I think they took, I think that they took sense. his words. Um, if, if I remember the stories correctly, um, uh, you know, Howard Johnson and uh, Charna Halpern like wrote that book for him from his ideas and yeah. things. And, uh, but you don't have like, again, there was no, nothing on like camera or anything. Cause people didn't, outside of the small group of people that like trained with him no one else cared so you would have to take that trip to chicago to like actually train with dell or train with the people that trained with dell yeah. or, or like these other improvisers yeah. yeah that's what matt walsh said was he was like sort of like mr miyagi you had to go to the source to like find you know especially then now you have so many schools and it's a thing but like at yeah. that point you really had to travel to chicago and go to like the oracle who could tell you about it who was the only one who was really like making it his thing to know about it and exactly. worked with it you know over the years well speaking of being on camera was there anything more to um his last big encounter the day, day where everyone came to visit him when he was um i mean was there anything more to it than what was presented in the documentary because it seems for someone that's not on camera much to like film what's supposed to be ostensibly your last day of living, like very theatrical. Yeah. Yes. Well, he was, uh, he liked to uh, <laughs> make a, a splash. I mean, yeah, from what I've heard of people who were there, you know, um, that he was just spectacular that, that, that day, even though he was, you know, at that point, couldn't breathe very well and um was probably in a lot of pain he was like genial and he said hello to everyone and you know he was funny and he gave sharna her due and he um you know uh, yeah he like made the rounds like the guru he was and um and then you know from the people i talked to who saw him the next day he was like completely kind of a shell like you know it was uh uh you know night and day and and he uh he i think he did pass away the next day um wow. and there's a funny yeah. story where he like he sort of decided or he 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 it seems like he decided that his last words should be i'm tired of being the funniest one in the room but he <laughs> so he said that and probably got a big laugh from the few people that were in there What's the Oscar Wilde supposedly last line? Oh, yeah, either the drapes go or I do. <laughs> Kids in the Hall had that sketch where they were they had that in there. That's the only reason I remember it. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so he he says this line, and then he doesn't die. <laughs> and he, <laughs> yeah, and like, hours later. It, it, well, no, it wasn't hours later. It was a little. It was like like a totally like a bit gone wrong. So like oh, you know yeah. he. You know, it's like, you know, like, oh no, like, and like his last words were actually him like yelling at, I think, like Howard Johnson for fixing his pillow wrong or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's bet, a, yeah. it's a herald that just keeps going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, uh, it was very, yeah. He also had like, because like, it was all very theatrical, as I understand it, like that he wanted to make it a big presentation, and he gave kind of this like speech where he was like, "There's this, you know, uh, I want to quote like a woman from another land that is is." misunderstood but and he says this beautiful thing about like what life is and what death is 
and he goes, Lenny Reifenstahl. Oh, right, so yeah. The, the Nazi <laughs> filmmaker. He likes to shock people. Yeah, yeah, like, just to throw that in. Um, <laughs> and then, I don't think you had this in the movie, but uh, there was always this legend, too, that about his skull after he died, yes. that he wanted, like, to have his skull uh, bequeathed to the Goodman Theater because oh yeah that's in there you have this yeah. thing where like I was gonna say I oh, think that was in the yeah. movie yeah. Oh, okay. it's, yeah, it's yeah, in the end credit it's like in the credit oh roll, right right a little picture in picture okay yeah yeah that he, he like they would never let him on the stage and uh, and so he wanted to play um, Horatio as the mm-hmm. skull and then Hamlet yeah were yeah. you well, around I mean, in Chicago for that Dustin like when that was all going down were you mm-hmm. did you did, yeah yeah do you remember that being pre- presented to the Goodman Theater and yeah yeah it like it like was like a thing and everybody was like mm, this is a little weird or like well, this is like like but like you know it was a very dell thing so yes. like we 100 percent like believed that uh he did it but like we were like did like is everybody going along with this or whatever and then like years later it came out that it wasn't really his skull it was just a skull but um yeah yeah like yeah sharna was mad Sharna was yeah. mad about it. She said, "I think she called him a jerky reporter." Some jerky reporter. Some jerky reporter out. was sniffing around, or you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, but I think they they said that they like even like used to pass the skull around, like when they were writing Elf. Maybe John Favreau like had it sent to like the writers' oh, room wow. or the set or something. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's fucking crazy. Uh, <laughs> what was that after knowing that it was not his skull? I don't know who knew and who didn't. I think there's something kind of even touching about passing around after you know it wasn't his Exactly. No, the novelty totally. works. Yeah, yeah, part of the myth. I, I thought the other touching thing that was a really key thing to focus on towards the end of the doc was um, the curse of gurus of, you know, um, your, your students are going to surpass you and his ambivalence about that. Yeah. And it, it like, that was another thing I found really touching about his story and relatable that like, um, you know, we don't always end up being the thing we th- thought we would. Like, I think, you know, there was a part of Dell that thought he would be the leading man, you know, who thought he would be the star. And that wasn't him. That was never, ever, ever from the get go who he was. He was always an oddball. He was always like a provocateur. Like those people are not the guys and girls that get to be on center stage. You know, they're the ones that like shake it up and, and challenge us, you know? So it was interesting, you know, and and I had heard about that video before we ended up actually seeing it. But so, you know, I was told a couple times, like, you know, like, I, I don't know how much Dell accepted himself and his role of a teacher, but I do remember he did this, you know, uh, invocation of himself. And in that he was like very aware of, of who he was. And then finally that video came out and it was like so moving because you see him sort of struggling and railing against the sort of thing that he had become and then sort of accepting that he was a door. He calls himself a door, you know, that like people can pass yeah. through, but he's, he's not going to get there, you know, and, and, you know, in his wiser moments or his calmer moments, he think he was okay with that. I did have one more question. How did, was everyone across the board uh, like eager to talk about him? Was, I mean, did you have mm-hmm. any kind of, was there, some kind of nail pulling you had to get with some people to talk about them? I mean, I think it was, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there are people who 
love him and want to talk about him or feel like he was influenced them and gave them some, you know, like Bob Odenkirk was, you know, I, I, I think really wanted to give him his due for the effect that he had had on, on Bob's life. Um, and there were other people um, like Holly Wartell did an interview about how, you know, misogynist he was. And, and we like had that in the cut forever. And then just like ended up like, you know, how, how far can we push an audience toward like hating someone before they just don't want to want, you know? So like, you know, and then it was, it was always important for us to get people um, who had, who didn't love him, you know, or even hated okay. him. Um, and it was, you know, and it was interesting, like, you know, there's a point where George went is like, so how real are we being here? Is everyone ratting him? That's, out? that's yeah. such a great, yeah. that's in the yeah. trailer even. It's such a great yeah. moment. It's such a great moment. Yeah. And I think, mo you know, I don't know. I'm, I, like I said, I'm not like um, in that family. So I'm sure there's even deeper, darker things that, 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 that exist that are, you know, part of, you know, that they're going to. Well, the, re the reason I just assumed it. was because like, he strikes me as someone that would uh, everyone would love and hate, and even the people who hated him would want to talk about him. Yeah, like Dave Thomas was happy to like hold forth about like what a you know <laughs> what a blowhard he was, yeah. but at the same time he gave him total credit for coming up with the idea for SCTV. So mm -hmm. um, you know, I think a lot of people were yeah like he was, he had his limits. This is what he was. He wasn't all of these things, but he did, he was this, you know, he did do these, you know, measurably interesting things. Uh, well, um, Heather and George, thank you guys for being on the podcast. Dustin, thanks for coming back. Thanks um, so much for having us. Thank you. you. Thanks for making the movie. That was good. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for making yeah. a movie too. It seems like a lot of people have been, you know, like Dustin mentioned, a lot of people have talked about making a movie about this forever. I think it was yeah. good that we came from outside the improv world and could be a little bit uh, <laughs> separate yeah. from the various mafia camps of, of, of comedy. Yeah. yeah. Right. There are a million ways to make this movie. You know, there are, I, I don't know how many, what the number is, but it, I'd say 150 documentaries that could be made about Del Close, <laughs> you know, um, in the same way that, you know, how many ways do you make a Herald? You know, you can just make so many of these things. That is because, exactly where my head was going. Because, how many ways can you, yeah. yeah, it's infinite. And in his like, it's hard enough to make a documentary about like a normal person. But like <laughs> when you get a character like this and all his influence and all his shortcomings and all his magic, you know, there are they're, they're a million ways to do it.